episode 14 of She Existed, the podcast wherein I, Ashlyn Romagnoli, share a story of a woman from history or legend previously unknown to me. Friends, Romans, countrywomen, oh my god, I am happy to be standing here right now and recording this for you. It almost didn't happen because I've had kind of a blech kind of week. Uh, The main thing is that one of our cats, uh, Sweet Casanova, my little fluffy orange familiar, has been in kind of a wonky place for a few weeks health-wise. A lot of meowing at all hours and a newly discovered love, or I should say obsession, with the bathroom tap. I mean, like, he's always liked running water, but this is a weird fucking fixation. And for the last three nights, he has been meowing non-stop. Seriously, and I mean non-stop. Like this, here. I have, I have an evidence, I have evidence, I have an example for you. Okay, you get the picture, but like literally for hours. I have an Apple Watch that tracks my sleep and I'm getting less than four hours a night. I am a minimum eight hours a night kind of gal. Uh, My husband is somehow fine on precisely six hours of sleep. He's basically like a robot who shuts down for optimal re-energizing, who pops up like a daisy after his scheduled sleep quota is reached. And part of his whole robot sleep thing is also that somehow he like doesn't hear Cass meowing. I don't know if it's a personal thing or a biological thing, like, maybe women are just, like, honed in to pay attention to high-pitched mewing-type sounds. But yeah, I have been cranky as shit and totally useless. At first I thought Cass might just be begging for the tap to be an asshole, uh, but after the first night I realized something must be wrong, so we are going to take him to the vet, never fear. I'm not a shitty pet owner for the most part. Um, But unfortunately, the English-speaking vet is only available on Saturday, so we have a few more days to try to keep him as happy and comfy as we can. Poor sweet boy. Anyway, uh, I was going to skip this week because I love this podcast and I love you all, but it's not like there's a gun to my head or a paycheck being waved in my face to do it every week. But then this morning, I had a migraine. And I know that doesn't sound like it should be exciting, and believe me, it was not in the experience of it, but it meant that I took one of my crazy migraine pills. (laughs) And let me tell you, that shit is intense, and it has some bizarre side effects, the weirdest of which is this sense of like super euphoria once the migraine lifts and the meds have run their course through my body. Um, Side note, like one doctor I asked like, why does this medicine work? And she was like, we don't really know. We think it just drains all the blood from your head. And then it's like a reset button. I was like, okay, that's crazy, but I'm not going to question it because <laughs> having migraines is the worst. Um, I would chalk this up to just being happy that the migraine is gone, uh, but it's kind of a similar, milder vibe to the times I've taken low doses of Molly. So, woo, you get an episode this week. <laughs> so last week's episode was pretty banging, I think, if I do say so myself. There was so much going on, so many little threads of uh, history and legend and myth that I tried to pull together, and honestly, I'm not even 100% sure it makes sense to anyone who isn't me, or if I conveyed what I was trying to convey, because Lamia, as a subject, ended up feeling much bigger and more important than I thought she was going to be when I was going into it. So today, I'm happy to share a woman that I came across while investigating Lamia last week, Um, unsurprisingly, I stumbled across her because her name is also Lamia, and she fits super nicely into the She Existed category of women who were definitely real, um, and we have interesting stories about, but maybe not enough to have justified, like, an entire 
podcast episode about her previously or like TV special or something until now. Uh, Before I begin, just to note that this episode has a lot of sex talk, so I don't know, be warned if you don't like the word penis, I guess. So Lamia of Athens lived in around 300 BCE. A lot of cool stuff happened then. We know her father's name, Cleonor. (laughs) Okay, that might be pronounced like Cleonor or Cleonor or something, but I'm going to call him Cleonor. Not that it matters because we don't know anything else about him, and we also don't know her mother's name. But Lamia was a popular and very accomplished flute player, but left that life behind in order to pursue a career as a hetaira. Now, I've briefly mentioned the hetaira in previous episodes, and I did threaten that I would dive into them someday. Well, today is that day. I think Lamia might even kick off a new little mini-series, kind of like the Salon detour that I took for a few episodes, because these women had some pretty kick-ass and interesting lives, and they actually were reasonably decently well-documented, which is pretty sweet. So if you don't know, uh, hetaire were essentially high-class courtesans of ancient Greece. They were often distinguished from the more common pornai, and yes, that is where the word porn comes from, uh, who would engage in sex acts for money with pretty much anyone who could pay and often worked on the street. Um, so in opposition to the pornai, hetaire were well-educated, charming, and they usually had only one or a handful of clients at any given time. Now, as with anything in history, and because I like to investigate all the different angles when I can, this definition of hetaire is actually somewhat up for debate. A hetaira has been suggested to refer to any kind of prostitute, which might even include the pornai. One academic that I came across even suggested that it just means the cultured, educational elements of the role and has nothing to do with the physical sex at all. And of course, each hetaira would have had a different experience. Uh, some of them may have been indebted or even enslaved. Some were free, and the most famous that I've ever heard of, the one who actually introduced me to even the concept, was Aspasia, who was a philosopher and a consort to Pericles. And, side note, she ran a popular salon, which of course, you know, I've talked about salons a lot in the past, so mm, themes keep colliding. Great. I'm going to go ahead and suggest that, though, as with most things, a touch of all these definitions are probably true. I imagine all sex work has always run along some kind of spectrum, like most things do, that ranged from casual to intimate, from cheap to expensive, from short-term to long-term, and that most women called hetaire ended up on one side of the spectrum for the most part, and women called pornai ended up on the other side, and frankly, society judges all of them anyway, of course, so that's that. Oh, and apparently the hetaire paid taxes unlike the pornai, so maybe that's another good distinguisher between them. And as to whether there was definitely sexual contact or not, I mean, unless we invent a time-traveling drone to go capture some footage, uh, we're never going to know. It's not like people don't lie about having sex all the time, either to pretend that they had it or to pretend like it doesn't exist based on whatever is culturally popular at the moment. I mean, pretty much all of British Victorian literature is ignoring the physicality of sexuality because it is socially unacceptable, but like, we know what the deal was with Lizzie Bennet and Fitzwilliam Darcy. Yes, that was his first name, Fitzwilliam. Sorry to burst that bubble. Anyway, more importantly for my purposes, it's also really like, who gives a fuck? Pun intended. What is sex anyway? Is it a literal penis entering a literal vagina and all of our gay friends are virgins? 
Does physically experiencing intimate contact somehow detract from the emotional or spiritual or cultural elements of the whole shebang? Why would we strip that piece of it away anyway? So yeah, everything is a spectrum on a spectrum. But of course, I recognize that we do need words to have definitions so we aren't just existing in a muddled soup of confusion all the time. All of those caveats aside, for the purposes of this episode, and most general usage, I would say, I think you can generally place hetaire in the same category as like a Japanese geisha or British courtesans like Camille of the great novel of the same name by Alexandre Dumas Jr. It's a category that shows up over and over in societies that repress women, an occupation that provides a limited way in which women can exert some agency over their own lives, have an excuse to be educated and witty, and maybe get some on the side but in such a way that dudes can still feel superior to them. Classic. Okay, you are welcome for that post-sumatriptan-inspired detour about historical sex work. And if you don't know me and are curious, yes, this is pretty much exactly the level of detail and rambling and curiosity in my conversations in real life, so let's have a moment of silent gratitude and appreciation for my favorite people who put up with this stuff on the regular. Back to Lamia of Athens. Okay, as I said... She was a great flute player. And side note, sorry, again, I know, side note, but is that a euphemism? (laughs) I have literally no evidence or reason for saying that. It just kind of occurred to me. But anyway, I'm pretty sure she was actually was a great flute player of the flute instrument, but she found herself drawn to the life of a hetaira. After all, she was by all accounts extremely witty and fun. We don't know a ton of details about her early life, but we do have several accounts of her later years, um, especially one by the one and only Plutarch. Apparently, Lamia found herself sailing to war with Ptolemy, possibly as his consort or one of his friend's consorts. Note that this is Ptolemy I Soter. He was the companion and historian of none other than Alexander the Great, and he planned the Library of Alexandria. May it rest forever in peace. Okay, yeah, so a big deal kind of dude, right? And although he did accomplish some badass stuff in history and ultimately did kick ass in this particular war, This specific battle saw him suffer a loss, and Lamia found herself the captive of a strapping up-and-coming young Macedonian prince, Demetrius, later Demetrius I of Macedon. Demetrius, it was said, was absolutely smitten by Lamia. Wounded soldier trope, anyone? Sexy. But I want to pause here for a second, because our historical sources make sure to hammer home the fact that she must have used her charm and wit to bewitch the young man rather than her beauty, because, as I noted before, these are accounts of Lamia's later years. That's right. Lamia might be the earliest described cougar in human history. Now, I take issue with the assumption that he couldn't have been interested in her physically because she's older. Like, have you seen Gillian Anderson lately? But I did find all of their commentary pretty funny to read. And honestly, Demetrius was kind of like a lovesick puppy, by all accounts. So let me dive into this in Plutarch's own words. Of all of Ptolemy's arms, money, and engines of war, absolutely nothing escaped Demetrius. Among this booty was the celebrated Lamia, originally held in esteem for her artistic skill. She was thought to play the flute quite admirably, but afterwards becoming illustrious in the annals of love also. At this time, at any rate... Although she was past her prime and found Demetrius much younger than herself, she so mastered and swayed him by her charms that he was a lover for her alone, but beloved for all other women. So, it's not like Demetrius didn't have options. 
but he stuck with Lamia for a very long time, even having a daughter with her. And it sounds like they had a pretty sexy life together. After returning home to Athens from the uh, overall pretty unsuccessful war, <laughs> all things considered, Demetrius, quote, plunged deep into luxuries, extravagances, and revelries, and devoted his leisure to pleasures without restraint. Indeed, he is described as having filled the Acropolis with, quote, dissolute life, with Chrysus and Lamia and Demo and Antichria, the well-known prostitutes. And he did eventually marry the daughter of another king, because uh, that's what you have to do when you're royalty. You have to, like, you can have your fun, but you have to make a politically advantageous marriage. It's just the way it be. I guess he got over his being a lover for Lamia alone thing, but Plutarch makes it clear that, quote, Lamia was known of all men to be in complete control of Demetrius. And this didn't really earn him any brownie points or respect from his peers. Lysimachus, who was a longtime rival, who through weird twists of history and conquest that I didn't dive into because this is she existed, not he existed, um, he would eventually succeed Demetrius as king. And he was said to have, quote, had most hatred for Demetrius, especially, quote, the man's passion for Lamia, and called Lamia a harlot. In response, Demetrius said that, quote, his own harlot, meaning Lamia, was more chaste than Penelope of Lysimachus. Boom, snap. Suck it, Lysimachus. And private beef was not the only beef. All of Athens was apparently not super impressed by Lamia. Plutarch cites Philippides in a story of this one time that Demetrius freaked the fuck out and demanded 250 talents pronto from the citizenry for him, and Athenians scrambled to get it. When it was presented to him, he gave it to Lamia and her fellow courtesans for, wait for it, soap. I mean, I know that fancy artisan soaps are not cheap, but that, that feels like a pretty egregious abuse of power. <laughs> and apparently, even Lamia herself would demand money from the good people of Athens. One particularly notable time, she wanted to throw a banquet for Demetrius that was so expensive that it got its own write-up by Lynceus the Samian and another poet called Lamia, quote, a veritable city-taker. All right, now let's get back to Lamia's amazing role as Queen Cougar, the first of her name. Obviously, people were pretty cranky about Lamia's less-than-thoughtful use of public funds, as well as her influence over their king. So we're getting some of the classic patriarchal knee-jerk reaction of making fun of her age, the most low-hanging fruit on the insult tree for women. One time, Demetrius's ambassadors went to Lysimachus and he was telling them this tale of this, like, epic battle that he fought against a lion, showing off some of his mad scarring. The ambassadors, quote, laughingly told him that their own king also carried on his neck the bites of a dreadful wild beast, a lamia. Side note, this is actually how I discovered Lamia of Athens. I came across this reference and thought it might be um, a reference to the succubus demoness, and I'm glad it wasn't because this is a great story. Um, anyway, despite the, quote, Disparity in years, he was vanquished by Lamia and loved her so long, although she was already past her prime. How generous. <laughs> Another story Plutarch relays is when Lamia was playing the flute at supper and Demetrius asked a guest what he thought of her. His response was, Oh, king, I think her an old woman. Rude, she is playing you the flute at this fancy dinner. 
And later, that guy doubled down when Demetrius bragged of the gifts that Lamia was always giving him. That same asshole <laughs> responded, My mother will send thee more, if thou wilt also make her thy mistress. So, I think my big takeaway right here is that we get not only maybe the earliest known cougar from her story, but also possibly the earliest variant of the Yo Mama joke. Thank you, Lamia, for your many gifts. So it's important to note that I share these anecdotes because I do find them kind of funny, especially considering they were written a couple of thousand years ago. But here's where I, of course, can't just let something funny be funny, because it's important to remember who is writing these stories and why. It's hard to know what to make of women of history, especially because we have so few accounts written by women. Certainly nothing of Lamia written in her own hand or a peer's hand. And although Plutarch feels like he's just recounting shit that happened, and maybe it all did, uh, the men in the stories have good reason, political, personal, maybe even sexual, for disliking Lamia and not wanting her to be portrayed in a positive light. But I believe that we can use all of these sources and read between the lines a little bit. No matter any slander, obviously Lamia was a strong-willed and opinionated woman. Maybe not a great trait to the men of that day, but something I personally admire now, especially given her oppressive context, like the ability to stand up and be a badass in a time when it was super not okay to be a badass, way more impressive than me just standing in this booth talking about it. So yeah, Lamia, good for her. I want to end this episode with two stories that showcase her strong personality in a way that I felt was a very positive light. Athenius was a Greek grammarian who would have lived a couple of hundred years after Lamia, but it is thanks to him that we have a copy of the part of a play written by the comic playwright Macon that references Lamia. Macon would have been Lamia's contemporary, so he would have been living at the same time, and he would have had some knowledge of what was going on. Be warned. I know I've already said penis like twice in this episode, but this excerpt of this play I'm going to read you gets pretty spicy. Quote, and Macon the comic poet, in his play entitled The Crye, speaks thus. But as Liana was by nature formed to give her lovers most exceeding pleasure, and was besides much favored by Demetrius, they say that Lamia also gratified the king, and when he praised her grace and quickness, the damsel answered, And besides you can, if you wish, subdue a lioness. But Lamia was always very witty and prompt in repartee, and again, Macon writes thus about Lamia. Demetrius the king was once displaying, amid his cups, a great variety of kinds of perfumes to his Lamia. Now, Lamia was a female flute player, and whom tis always said Demetrius was very much in love. But when she scoffed at all his perfumes, and moreover, treated the monarch with exceeding insolence, he bade his slave bring some cheap unguent, and he rubbed himself with that, and smeared his fingers, and said, at least smell this, O Lamia, and see how much this scent does beat all the others. She laughingly replied, But no, O king, that smell does seem to me the worst of all. But, said Demetrius, I swear, by the gods, that tis produced from a right royal nut. Okay, okay, we're all adults here, I'm gonna assume. And I don't have to explain that joke, right? Okay, remember when you first learned that Shakespeare is like 80% dick jokes? Well, there is a reason that we say that there is nothing new under the sun. But I liked the story for its humanity. Lamia is being kind of a bitch about all of these nice things that Demetrius is bringing her, and he calls her on it in the funniest, grossest possible way that only a teasing lover could. 
The last little tale is again from Plutarch, and is her reported commentary on a famous judgment of the time. Here we have it. Quote, There was, namely, a certain Egyptian who was in love with Thonis the courtesan, and who was asked a great sum of money for her favors. Then he dreamed that he enjoyed these favors and ceased his desires. Thereupon Thonis brought an action against him for payment due, and Bacchorus, on hearing the case, ordered the man to bring into court in its coffer the sum total demanded on him, and to move it hither and thither with his hand, and the courtesan was to grasp its shadow, since the thing imagined is a shadow of the reality. This judgment Lamia thought to be unjust, for though the dream put an end to the young man's passion, the shadow of the money did not set the courtesan free from her desire of it. Okay, how insightful and perceptive is that? <laughs> At first reading, I thought the judge, but Chorus, was being clever. Like, illusory payment for dream sex. It makes total sense. But I love that Lamia managed to flip the script a bit and find a legit alternative opinion of the story to support her fellow courtesan. And that is it for this week. As ever, I think it's going to be a short one, and then there's just so much cool shit that I can't help myself and I want to share. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode on Lamia of Athens. Here's what you can search for. Lamia, L-A-M-I-A, Hetaira, H-E-T-A-I-R-A, and that has a lot of different spellings, but you'll find it. Demetrius, D-E-M-E-T-R-I-U-S, Plutarch's Lives. <laughs> so Plutarch is P-L-U-T-A-R-C-H, and yeah, the book is Lives, which it's just like full of totally random anecdotes about random people that you've probably never heard of, and there are just some crazy gems in there that I love. So, in the words of Plutarch, so much then for Lamia. Thanks for listening. Stay curious out there. 